Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy inviting the United States intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Karen Gibson, a former U.S. Army Lieutenant General who served for 33 years in a variety of joint and operational intelligence assignments in Alaska, Hawaii, Korea, Afghanistan, East Africa, and across the Middle East. She commanded at the company, battalion, and brigade levels. She served as the Director of Intelligence for four different organizations to include U.S. Central Command, also known as CENTCOM, and at deployed task forces in Iraq and Africa. She finished her career this spring as the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for National Security Partnerships here in D.C. Karen, thank you for joining us today. We are so grateful to have you. Thanks for having me, Megan. It's a real treat to sit down and chat with you. Well, we're excited. Thanks. So, To set the scene, I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit about how you got into intelligence and why you chose intelligence as a career. Yeah. So I have to confess it was very accidental. You know, um, long range planning was not my strong suit at the age of 18, 19, 20. And I was looking for a way to pay for college. So I signed up uh, specifically my out-of-state tuition at Purdue University. And I I signed up for Army ROTC, knowing I was going to have to join the Army afterwards. But you know, when you're 18, four years away just seems like an eternity. And and then, you know, eventually as my commissioning approached, you get a chance to weigh in on, you know, what branch of the Army uh, you want to, to serve in. And I really didn't know a lot about the military yet, despite, you know, four years of ROTC. But two more senior cadets who I had respected had both gone military intelligence. So I thought, well, that must be a good field. And then also, you know, the more I learned about uh, the Army, and at that point, you're very focused on small unit tactics, you know, platoons, maybe companies. um, I I realized that the intelligence officer got to be in the tent, uh, huddled around the map board with the commander and ops chief and kind of by providing a, a perspective on what they expected the enemies to do, uh, in terms of, you know, how are they going to approach our position or where are their weaknesses, that, that you got to be part of that decision process. And most of the other female cadets, um, both in the years before me and even in my year, a lot of them chose logistics or, you know, uh, it's called adjutant general. It's really like human resources or finance or something. And, and I didn't want to be one of those folks that was back in the rear, as we called it back then, uh, you know, working on support. I really wanted to be in the tent with the commander, helping advise his decisions. And this was another reason that intelligence as a career field in the Army seemed appealing to me. For me, it sounds exciting being inside the tent. 
And I think many of our listeners dream to one day be at, you know, in the center of the action or inside the tent, as you describe it. What does it look like to be at the nexus of intelligence and operations? And how does this differ at, you know, the junior, mid-career and more senior levels? So um, I have to admit, you know, it, it's kind of if you're familiar with the expression, you can be a big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond. Um, uh, you know, I, I certainly was in very tiny ponds initially, uh, you know, when you're a young lieutenant um, and and really as an army officer, the first things you have to do is really learn what it is to be an army officer. You know, what is what is the difference between an officer and a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, a private? You know, what is what is your role? How do you conduct combined arms warfare? You know, you're running rifle ranges. You're going to be a convoy commander. You investigate missing property. You're doing basic kind of lieutenant things. And it was a few years before I really got to be inside the tent in a meaningful way because you kind of have to master your craft. Again, at that point, it was combined arms warfare before you get to do that. A lot of what the intelligence community does, and I would say most of the people who are in the intelligence community are not at the nexus of intelligence and operations. And I had many exciting assignments where I was, but I also had a lot of them where you're on the periphery supporting those. Um, And one I think I would highlight um, was my second assignment, which was in Hawaii. I started out in Alaska, which was really in a light infantry division. It was really very much about learning how to be a soldier uh, and how the army, you know, conducts combat operations. But after that, I went to Hawaii as a young captain uh, to what we would now call NSA Hawaii, but back then it was called the Kenia Regional SIGIN Operations Center, <laughs> a.k.a. the Tunnel. Um, because it was literally an underground building. It had been built in World War II to put together aircraft engines on the island of Oahu. And then they were going to roll them out the tunnel out to Wheeler Army Airfield, which is still there today, and there construct uh, an aircraft. And so they had built this little kind of three-story underground building. And shortly after they built it, I think the war ended. I'm not sure they ever actually manufactured any any aircraft engines there. And ultimately in the 70s or 80s or maybe 90s, um, NSA took it over and it became an NSA site in, in Hawaii. And we called ourselves the Tunnel Rats. And um, and you actually had to go up the steep tunnel. It was about a quarter mile. We would do relay races sometimes. It was very tough if you had the uphill leg, you prefer to do the downhill leg. And inside that three-story building, we would monitor communications and exploit communications from across the Pacific largely for U.S. Pacific Command, which was also there on Oahu. It was very interesting to work in that facility. Um, When we had fire drills, you would go out uh, a hatch in the roof and pop out in a pineapple field uh, full of orange dirt. And I always felt sorry for the naval officers in their white shoes uh, and their white slacks that would be orange by the time you crawled, walked back down uh, to the parking lot. But inside, um, we were monitoring communications. And I had three platoons, that was about 100 people, of Morse code intercept operators. So this is how long ago it was. People were actually using Morse code still. And they would sit in a position uh, it was called sit position. It, it was, you know, a chair in front of this giant bank. It looked like a big computer, actually, with what we called cans on their ears, you know, headsets. And uh, and this was a long time ago. There was still a little depression uh, by the keyboard for your ashtray uh, because that, that was back when you could still smoke inside a federal building. And they would monitor 
uh, Morse code communications in various Asian nations. And I just thought that was wicked cool. Um, we also did support for sensitive reconnaissance operations. So as a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft, or perhaps even the president or someone important is going to be flying near, for instance, China, we would monitor things like air defense radars. And if we saw them light up, uh, which meant that, you know, that country's air defense systems were aware of our aircraft. We had this thing that literally looked like a phone booth. It had this uh, this kind of glass door. You went in, you shut it, there was a phone and you could communicate with the aircraft and using coded, you know, preset code words, tell them uh, about this this threat warning. And, and that was pretty exciting. Along the lines of that tunnel, when I was stationed in Korea, um we would work occasionally on exercises at a place called CP Tango. I think that stands for Command Post Tango. And it was also about a three-story building, much larger, underground in Korea. And as you went from one part of the facility to another, there were real rock walls that were kind of wet and had slimy, moldy, you know, seaweed growing on them or something. And, uh, and this is where we would do our exercises. And in theory, it's where we were supposed to go if there was actually a war with the North Koreans. Um, I had a lot of concerns about that, least of which was the smell. <laughs> because at, by about day three, and you could smell all these people that were stuck inside this, this building. Um, by, the, by the end of a two-week exercise, it was, it was pretty ripe. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to stay down here for a whole war. But, um, but those were really <laughs> largely exercises. You know, Prior to 9-11, um, my experience was largely preparing for or to support, you know, some kind of contingency. After 9-11, that really changed. And so, you know, your question about what it's like to be early, mid-grade or senior grade, my, my rise in seniority also coincided with an uptick in actual military operations and deployments. Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate later in the second half of my career to spend quite a bit of time inside the tent. And to be in support of real military operations can be incredibly exciting. Um, you know, one of, I guess, my first truly exciting uh, assignments in that regard was in Afghanistan. I was there when General Dunford, uh, later our chairman, was in charge. And, and I learned a tremendous amount from him uh, just by being a fly on the wall as he would discuss his strategy, talk about his concerns, and one of the things that I found incredibly useful about that experience was by being made aware of the commander's strategy and understanding what he was trying to accomplish. When I went back to the SCIF to write intelligence products to support him, I could better identify what kinds of information was going to be useful to him. What would present a risk to the campaign? Where is an opportunity that he can exploit? What do I need to flag for his attention? And when you're removed from your customer, when you're separate and don't truly understand what they're trying to accomplish, that's much more difficult. Um, and so I've always valued, if not an actual physical proximity to that commander or decision maker that I'm trying to support, at least you know, a, a mental understanding of being in his head and understanding what he's trying to accomplish. And I keep using he, he words because they were always men. One day it'll be a woman, but, uh, but so far it's, it's always been men. Um, and I was not the only one that found that just thrilling. Um, one of the things I particularly liked, like about deployments is at that operational level of warfare is really, I think, where you get to work with 
a whole of government team on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I always had a senior representative from NSA, from NGA, from DIA. I have a regular connection with CIA, with the chief of station. When I was in Djibouti in, in Africa, I would meet with the ambassador once a week. When I was in Afghanistan, I would send a rep to meet with the ambassador every day. Uh, to kind of go over for him what was happening in terms of battles in Iraq. Um, and so to work closely with Department of State, USAID, uh, some of the other agencies, FBI, et cetera, every day, you don't get to do that uh, back stateside uh, so much. And so it was it's very neat to see how all those different parts of the intelligence community come together to help solve a problem. And, uh, and again, I think that tends to happen most when you're far forward. There are some op centers in the United States where that occurs, but, but that's very exciting to me. And again, I know I'm not the only one that enjoyed it. Uh, one, one vignette that really kind of stuck with me, um, most of my NGA analysts, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, came from the huge NGA uh, organization in St. Louis, where you really are quite removed from other customers, whether they're the Department right. of Defense state or anywhere else. And so, you know, they would tell me sometimes that the closest you get to feedback is someone will send you a note that said, Deputy Assistant Secretary so-and-so read your report with interest. Uh, and that was about it for customer feedback. And, and I remember one time we were concerned about a possible attack that was going to come into Kabul. And uh, the general who was in charge of all the NATO operations in Afghanistan, came into the skiff. He knew exactly what he wanted. He was bent over the shoulder of my, my lead NGA chief. He said, put an arrow there, you know, coming into town here. He said, hit print, I'm taking it to Karzai. And, uh, and my analyst eyes just lit up to know that this PowerPoint slide he just built, you know, based on his own imagery, uh, was going to be placed in front of um, the president of Afghanistan. Well, I'm sure it uh, it made his career to that point, at that point. Like, wow. Yeah, I, I think my NGA analysts often appreciated this the most, again, perhaps because they were from St. Louis. Uh, when I worked for General Townsend for the Defeat ISIS campaign in Iraq and Syria, he was very much a map man. Everything you briefed him, you had to have a map. And we would meet with him about once a month to tweak his personal map that he would carry around in his cargo pocket. And he would pull it out and lay it in front of prime ministers, presidents, delegations. And, um, and at the end of that campaign, when it was time for him to redeploy, I think NGA requested a copy of his map. We called it the Dragon Six Special because Dragon Six was his you know, code name on the radio. Uh, asked for his map for a museum uh, of oh, wow. you know, this kind of battlefield map. And I think another thing that is exciting to be you know, in the tent, so to speak, is to see your work actually put into action. And um, another example that I recall from the Iraq-Syria days, I really, whenever I could, I wanted to get my coalition officers in front of the commander to brief him. And he appreciated that as well. Of course, it had to be on a less classified topic, you know, secret or below. But I remember one, uh, as we were getting ready to launch some major offensives in northern Syria, and I had a coalition team that had done a lot of analysis of the topography and specifically this dam, the Topka Dam, 
on the Euphrates River that it was going to be key for us to secure before we could launch the offensive to retake Raqqa, which was the ISIS capital at that point. And, uh, and one of my officers uh, from Asia, I believe he was from Singapore, uh, he did a lot of the presentation and discussion on the physical characteristics of that dam and why it was so important. About a month later, General Townsend, our commander, was giving a town hall to the entire you know, coalition talking about he would give these periodic updates of what we'd accomplished so far, you know, what the next steps of the campaign we're going to do, where we were headed. And, and he started spouting exactly the words and the analysis that my coalition officer had presented to him about the dam. And I said, how did it feel to hear your words and your analysis coming out of the boss's mouth? He said, that's success. And that's when you know that your intelligence has really made a difference when you hear your boss using it in conversation with others. That's yeah. that's incredibly satisfying. So I always appreciated that. Well, these uh, these were fantastic inside baseball stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. Um, so to switch gears a little bit, how do you feel your experience as an intelligence officer is portrayed by popular culture or or is it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I always when I meet someone somewhere that has, you know, nothing to do with my profession or family and they want to know what you do, I, I often hesitate to say or, you know, I'll tell people I was in the army. I, I'm a soldier and they want to know what you did. I, I, I kind of hesitate to say intelligence because I just think it calls to mind these ridiculous images from popular culture. You know, uh, the one right. that really used to kill me was uh, Enemy of the State with Will Smith. You know, fortunately, I think people realize that, you know, James Bond is, is a gross exaggeration. I love those movies. They're, you know, great fun to watch, but uh, that, that is not reality. And I, I think um, a, a couple of ways that it differs. Number one is television makes it look a lot easier than it really is. Uh, you know, um, there's a James Bond movie where they go, it's sort of like, well, let's see what Megan's up to. And they walk across the room and someone types in your name and, you know, images of you come up. Uh, having, having, you know, spent a lot of time trying to find high value individuals or keep track of their activities. I know right. how incredibly hard that is. It is <laughs> nothing like the way that they depict it uh, in the movies. There's it's it's often, you know, very slow going. There's a lot of nug work, especially early in a problem. Um, it, television doesn't portray the bureaucracy, uh, you know, the policy fights, the resources, um, they make it look a lot more glamorous. And I think aside from just making it look so much easier, um, in popular culture, it often boils down to one agent or one analyst uh, right. who does it all. And that is absolutely not the case. You know, I think intelligence is the ultimate team sport. We have to have sharing in our DNA. It is all about collaboration and cooperation. Any Intel team or organization or agency that says that they can do it all themselves is delusional, inexperienced, or lying. I mean, it is a team sport. And it is that team aspect of it um, is typically not reflected, I think, in popular culture. So you're the first speaker we've had on this podcast who is from the military intelligence world as opposed to the national intelligence world, mm -hmm. which I think most people tend to be more familiar with. Um, what, in your opinion, is the biggest difference between the two? And what would you want someone just starting out in their career to know about military intelligence? Yeah, see, to me, that seems I, I, I'm a little surprised by that. I'm like, what do you mean people don't? I, you know, I feel like there's not 
that much difference in many ways, uh, although I guess perhaps there is. Um, you know, there's extremely tactical intelligence, which is clearly military. You know, you're in charge of Al-Assad Air Base and Anbar Province, and you're charged with keeping it physically secure, understanding how it might be attacked, where and when. That's very tactical. That's military intelligence. And then there's certain intelligence that's clearly national intelligence. You know, you're preparing the president for her meeting with the Finnish prime minister and, uh, uh, you know, you want to inform her of what they've been talking about back channel regarding some trade agreement. Well, that's not military intelligence. But in the middle is a huge area where I think military and national intelligence really kind of blend, in part because one of our primary instruments of power is in the U.S., the military. Um, but at that operational theater level of, of the military, which is largely where I served in the last half of my career, say at U.S. Central Command, you're not just looking at terrain and weather and enemy weapons. You need to know and understand demographics, political movements, social unrest, economics, and and I incorporated all of that into my analysis, not only at U.S. Central Command, but in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, East Africa. And so, you know, you're using much of the same intelligence information and to an extent feeding it, you know, defense attaches who write reports about their observations in another country. And I've described the kind of whole of government team that you work with forward that in my mind makes it harder to differentiate the difference between military intelligence and national intelligence. We do have divisions in the budget, um, but those are, I think, becoming increasingly blended. And it's, it's hard to sometimes categorize whether something is national or military intelligence and whose dollars are being spent. You know, if we send, say, for instance, a, a U-2 aircraft, um, you know, over a country to take pictures, uh, well, some of those pictures might be for, you know, the Secretary of State. Some of those pictures might be for, you know, something that the Department of Energy is looking at. And a lot of them may be for the Department of Defense. Whose dollars should pay for that? So I really do think it is more blended than it feels to me like it is more blended than many people realize. Um, so, but perhaps that's from my foxhole. Well, no, it sounds like when you talked about teamwork before, you know, Intelligence is teamwork at the the micro level when you're working mm -hmm. in your teams and the macro level when you're working with, you know, military intelligence, national intelligence, different military organizations or mm -hmm. intelligence organizations. So it's it's the ultimate team sport, it sounds like. So, you know, we use intelligence for a lot of reasons and and to secure secure, to meet our national security objectives uh, overseas for the most part. And there are also domestic intelligence challenges, you know, cyber vulnerabilities, protecting critical infrastructure, counterintelligence, um, intellectual property theft. Those are not military issues, but overseas, overseas, it's a tremendous blending of those. And so I think what I would say to someone who thinks they are a national intelligence analyst and they're in Beltway or working at a, a three-letter agency, I would ask them to remember that there are human beings at the other end of whatever it is they're working on. Because ultimately, despite all of our technologies, conflict is inherently a very human endeavor. And whether it's our own military forces or whether it's you know local populations on the ground, it's, it really comes down to it's still going to affect human beings. 
Um, when I, I've worked at the Pentagon a couple of times um, and not my favorite assignments, but I, I've worked at the Pentagon a couple of times. And, and, uh, and one of the last times in particular, the way that I would walk to get to my office, I would walk past uh, down a corridor that was for Department of the Army Logistics. And when you first entered that corridor, there's a lot of art in the, in the Pentagon. If you've never been there, it's kind of like being in a museum. It's quite interesting. But it was a photo of a young man. Perhaps it was Vietnam era. And he had a rifle in his hand and a helmet. It was not posed. It was a photograph taken downrange. And, and, and it was just such a compelling picture to me. The expression on his face looked a little vulnerable, um, you know, he was probably full of adrenaline, you know, I don't know if he was scared. Uh, and, but it, that picture moved me every day. And, you know, perhaps in part because I'm old enough now, it made me think of my son. Um, and I, I would look at that picture, especially on days when I didn't want to be there. And I think this is why you're coming to work every day to make sure that this young man is armed with the best intelligence and equipment possible, uh, to do his job. So, you know, for those who are in national intelligence, I would ask you to remember whether it's our own citizens or people of another nation, there are human beings on the other end of what we're working on. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. This year, in April, you retired from the Army after 33 years of service. Has it been difficult transitioning away from such a mission-focused organization? Have you had to redefine your mission now that you're in a different phase of your career? further from the center of the action? Yes. Oh, well, first I'll point out that those 33 years are 29 longer than they were supposed to be. And I was going <laughs> to use those four years in the army to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, uh -huh. So, um, and still working on that. Perhaps that's why I had to stay in so long. Yes. It's been a huge change. Um, for one, it's the first time in my life when people are not telling me where I'm going to go next and what I'm going to do, you know, because I've always had, Hey, you know, us central command, or, you know, you're going to be the J two, you know, in, in Djibouti or wherever someone's always an assignment officer has selected that assignment. Senior officers above me have approved it. And I've never had to pick what I was going to do. And yeah. in exploring the world of the possible, I find that there are just too many options. And as with a lot of things, my, appetite and desires exceed the size of my plate. And I feel like I've been led into this all-you-can-eat smorgasbord, not the cheap kind, the kind with like really delicious high-end <laughs> food, maybe a high-end, you know, hotel buffet, and I have a little six-inch plate. And that's the hours in the day. And I want a little of everything. So um, I've, I've been challenged in trying to sort through all these things and figure out what I want to do um, another challenge has been you're not raised to say no in the army. You know, when they say you're going to go do this or do you want to, you just say yes. Um, and so I've had a hard time saying no. And I've also bit off more than I can chew. And I've got an awful lot of stuff stacked on that little six inch plate right now. And I'm going to have to sort through, you know, what I'm really going to keep and, and what are some of those activities that I'll just have to say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for this. I think uh, a couple other differences, you know, for my adult life, uh, the income I've drawn has been that which Congress decided I deserved. I've never had to negotiate a salary. I'm still, you know, sorting through determining what is my worth. 
how much do you charge for certain things? You know, what is a reasonable expectation for compensation for certain kinds of activities? And, and that's not something I've been real comfortable with. Um, you're also, I think, in the military, you know, there are certainly people who don't lack for confidence, but we kind of look down on the folks that are always bragging about themselves. Yet, when you're now that you're marketing yourself as a commodity, so to speak, that requires a different kind of talking about your talents and experience um, that isn't always comfortable uh, for all of us. And I think that some of these things I've just highlighted can be particular challenges for women. Um, uh, it's just perhaps not how we've been raised. Well, um, and I also think that you, um, you know, what you just laid out is often um, challenging for women just starting out in their career sure. um, if they're not in the military. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, figuring out what your worth is and how you negotiate and kind of marketing yourself is difficult for early career folks. So to hear that you as a, um, a senior member of the community are still, you know, struggling with that, right. I think is comforting because it is difficult no matter where you are in your career yeah. to you know, really understand your worth and, um, you know, and kind of fight for it. Yeah. I think, I think finally, one of the other kind of challenges uh, as you leave government, whether you were a civilian or a military is, you know, I grew up in a system where definitions of success were clearly understood. You know, you get promoted at this certain rate, you know, these are good jobs. These are not so great jobs. Um, you had a system that kind of told you, you know, how well you were doing. You got report cards, you know, at least every 12 months uh, that would assess your contributions, you receive awards, whatever. And now that whole, you know, grading, evaluation, assessment criteria, that fabric, that rubric is gone. And so in the same way that I get to decide what I want to put on that teeny little plate, I also get to decide, you know, what is my new personal definition of success? And uh, to date, it's been kind of when I wanted to figure out, am I doing well? I would look at the largely men who had gone ahead of me and say, so-and-so did this. I must be doing well. And I've decided, though, that the post-military track of those men I followed for 33 years is not necessarily the one I want to follow. And so I sometimes have to remind myself that their criteria for success is no longer mine. Um, uh, you know, there's an expression in yoga, kind of keep your eye on your own mat. You know, mm -hmm. don't compare yourself with others, particularly if you're not competing in the same game anymore, uh, which is a little hard if you've always been a type A person. Um, but really kind of trying to assess, you know, how do you define success? Is it, you know, meaning? What brings meaning to your life? Is it the kinds of contributions you are making? What constitutes a useful life uh, at the end of a long career? How do you still continue to contribute and have impact? Um, for some people, their measure of success may be, you know, how big is their paycheck? You know, compensation is nice and that matters to me, but that's that's not going to be my my measure. I love that answer. I, I love that answer. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so we like to end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? 
I have to tell you, Megan, I way overthought this. I spent more time on this question than anything else. It was ridiculous. I love it. I love I, it. I, you know, and I, I rejected so many things because I thought your code name should not be identifiable to you. You know, I, I mean, I have my hair is largely gray slash white. And I thought, you know, the silver fox, the dandelion, but I no, it can't be anything that they'd be like, ah, silver must be Gibson. Uh, and, and so, you know, I went through all these animals. I went through, I considered briefly Svetlana because I thought no one will ever think of that one or Consuela. Um, and I decided I chose the kumquat. And I know you may think that's just, well, see one, no one would think of it, right? That, so that's important. Um, two, but, but it is, uh, it is an unusual piece of fruit. It is not common, which you might say is, you know, a girl who joins the army or a woman who, you know, rises to three stars in, in a men's military. Um, it's not quite like all the others. And I Googled it to see what they taste like. And it said, uh, if you're lucky enough to find one of these little gems, you will enjoy their bright flavor, which is stunning, irresistible and addictive. And I thought, hey, kumquat, that's it for me. What a way to end an episode. That is fantastic. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and your stories. Um, you've had an incredible life uh, and career in the IC, and it has been such a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, we'd love to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.